book of Acts, and we will be in chapter 2 to begin this morning. If you are visiting with us this morning, or you're just kind of new around Grace Bible Church, I am uh, Jared Manning. I'm one of the pastors here, the Associate Pastor of Ministry, and I do get the opportunity um, to work with students here, to lead worship, and on occasion preach. And uh, so this morning we are continuing our study um, on ology, foundations of the Christian faith, or basic truths of the Christian faith. And this morning, we're going to be talking ecclesiology, the study of the church. Um, if that sounds like a broad topic to you, it's because it is a broad topic. And so, the hardest thing in preparing for this sermon um, this week was, what do I include and what do I not include because we only have so much time this morning. So I'm going to encourage you, even after we leave this morning, to go and I'm going to give you some resources that you can go and look at more if you want to study more about what the church is, its purpose, and all those things. I'm going to be touching on a few things this morning um, that I think are important to mention. Um, If you have been here for a while, then you sat through a series that Brian preached on fulfilling the mission of the church. And so a lot of What I um, would have covered in this has been covered. And so you can go back online and listen to that if you want to hear those sermons. And uh, we're going to jump in this morning in Acts chapter 2. But first I want to say on any given Sunday, or any given day of the week really, you probably hear the word church used in many different ways. Um, People will say, I'm going to church. Right? And usually when they say that, they're referring to Sunday morning service. I'm going to church on Sunday. Um, Or you might hear the phrase, I'm going to the church. Right? And usually when we use that phrase, we're talking about the building. Right? I'm headed up to the church. I find myself using that one often. Or I'm at the church. Or whatever it is. And, And we often use that word pretty lightly. We throw it around in different sentences, in different contexts. Um, we may even talk about wearing our church clothes. Right? If you ever heard that phrase used, what's the dress going to be like at this party or whatever? Oh, it's like church clothes, right? Um, we'll, we'll use that as an adjective even in talking about our clothes. Um, or, as we've heard on Sunday, what is the mission of the church? In which case we're probably talking about the people, right? And the group of people that is referred to by scripture as the church. Um, we tend to throw that word around to mean a multiple uh, or a multitude of things, but we re- rarely think about how Scripture actually defines the church. And so that's where I want to begin this morning is, how does Scripture actually define the church? If you would look with me in Acts 2, we're going to begin in verse 42. Peter has preached a sermon at Pentecost. Many are coming to the faith. And in Acts 2, beginning in verse 42... We get this, Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and, all, and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning 
submitting ourselves to the authority of your word. God, I pray that we would be a people who constantly run to the scriptures to learn how we are to think about life, how we are to live out life. God, I pray that we would be a people of your word. God, this morning we come to learn about what you have said about your church. God, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would, would use me to speak, God, that I would be removed and, and, Father, what you have to say to the hearts of the people in this room would be clearly heard through the teaching of your word. We thank you that we have been called into this body through the blood of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we want to look at this morning is the characteristics of the church. What, what does that look like? What is, when we're talking about the church, what does it do? What does it look like? Those kind of things. So we're going to start with the characteristics here. In Acts 2.42, we have kind of a pretty good description of what the church does. Right at this point in history, in Acts chapter 2, it says they continually devoted themselves to prayer and to the teaching of the apostles and to breaking bread and all were selling everything they had and distributing to any who had need within the body of Christ. Um, and, and so we kind of see what they're doing. One author has summarized this whole section of scripture in this way. It says, the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory. So that is in one big nutshell what we see here in, in Acts 2, what's happening with the church. So if this is what the church looks like, then we first have to decide who, who's a part of that. Who gets to be a part of this church that's functioning in Acts 2? Who are the people that are doing this? Who's devoting themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching? Who's taking communion together through the Lord's Supper? Who's, who's doing these things? Wayne Grudem states it simply that all true believers of all time are part of the church. The church is made up of all true believers of all time. Ephesians 5.25 says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's not as though Christ died only for those who came after Christ. After Acts chapter 2, the church who Christ died for includes all those who have truly professed and believed in Jesus Christ. He died for those who had trusted in a future Redeemer that God promised He would send. And He died for those who are looking back at Christ's death and what He has already done on the cross for us. And that being the case, only God can know who is a part of the true church because only God sees the heart. If the church is made up of all true believers, we can't see people's hearts, so we don't know who actually are true believers. We can't ever be for sure of that. And so we have 
two different things that we see in Scripture. There's an invisible church, or often referred to as the universal church, all those who have believed in Christ Jesus. And then we have the visible church, that is, the local church, or the local gatherings or assemblies of the church. We see the church worked out in these two ways. Because we can't know the hearts of people, the universal or the invisible church, only God sees and knows. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows who are His. The universal church is only made up of true believers. The local church, however, the visible church is made up of believers and some non-believers. We only know people to be a part of the church by their profession of faith and their pattern of life. So that's why Jesus says to be aware that there might be some tares in among the wheat. That's why Paul is constantly warning people throughout the epistles that there will be wolves that come in in sheep's clothing. They look like they're a part of the church, but they may not actually be a part of the church. It's what makes church discipline so necessary when we go through Matthew 18 and see what Christ has to say about how we discipline people within the church, how we check to see that people are in the faith. Paul constantly encourages people to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. We have to understand that in the visible church, we will have unbelievers in our midst. It's the nature of who we are and what we do because we cannot see the heart. So with that foundation... With those characteristics, we can look at the identity that's given to the church by Scripture. Many different metaphors are used in Scripture to describe the church. There are metaphors like the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, household of God, those, those kind of things. We don't have time this morning to go through every one of them, but I'd like to hit a few. And I encourage you, if you're in a life group here at Grace... Um, this week if you're meeting or next week when you meet, I would encourage you to maybe even look through Scripture and look for more metaphors throughout the New Testament that are used to talk about the church. And maybe bring those to your life group and say, what does this mean? What does this metaphor mean for us as believers, as the church? What does it mean in our relationship to God and to Christ? We're going to go through about four here this morning. The first metaphor um, or description or identity that's given to the church is the body of Christ. This is most often referred to, I think, in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and 28 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. And then in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And speaking of Christ as the head of the body who gives, all, gives us all we need for life, Paul writes, Christ is the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows, and that growth is from God. That's Colossians 2.19. So the first thing that we are um, described as in the New Testament church is the body of Christ. That has implications for how we operate. And later Paul will talk about how we operate as the church and as the body because the eye can't do, can't, or the, the body can't see without the eyes. Can't move without its legs. It can't grasp things without hands and 
and arms and different things like that. And so we have this metaphor given of the church being the body of Christ because we are individually members of it and we all have a job and we all have a function within the body of Christ. And so as you sit here this morning, I want you to think about how you are functioning within this body. We're a local body. We have many different people in here with many different gifts, and many different abilities, different talents. And how are you functioning within this specific body? Because you do have a job. You do have a function. You've been given specific abilities and specific talents by God to serve in this body. So I would encourage you this morning to think, how am I fulfilling that role? Am I one of the hands that's not active? And I'm hurting the church by not fulfilling my role? Am I one of the eyes? Am I, what, what am I? What is my role here? Scripture thought it was important for us to have this metaphor and this picture of the church being one organism with many different members doing different things. So maybe you have a gift of teaching and you're not using that gift right now. I'd like for you to ask yourself, how can I get involved? Talk to some of the elders. See Brian or myself. Ask, you know, I, I feel like I have a gift to teach. I've even taught classes in the past. We have places for you to get plugged in. Maybe your gift is music. Maybe you love kids. Maybe you like to clean. Um... Some people groan and other people are like, yeah, I like to clean. Um, maybe you're one of those OCD people that actually enjoys that kind of thing. Um, if that's your gift, how are you using it in this body, in, in the church here? Whatever your gifts are, I want you to think through those things and understand that you're a member of this body for a reason. God doesn't have you here by mistake or accident. It's not coincidence that you're here in a part of Grace Bible Church. God is divinely appointed that you be here for a purpose. So I want you to think about how am I fulfilling my role in this body? The second metaphor used in Scripture is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, talking about marriage, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So what Paul just said is this mystery of marriage, and this mystery of a man leaving his family, his mother and his father, and being held fast to his wife, and the two becoming one flesh. This mystery is very profound. And Paul just opens it up to us and says it's Christ in the church. That's what this is. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ has married the church. We are his body. We have become one with Christ. Paul speaking to the Corinthian church says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul saying, I've worked among you, I've labored among you so that I could present the church to Christ. That you would be pure, that you would be sanctified. We are the bride of Christ. That has great and glorious implications. 
If you look throughout Scripture as we are referred to as the bride of Christ, this shows us Christ's love for His church. Christ is in an eternal commitment to His bride. He's displayed His love on the cross. He has sealed His love in the resurrection and He has promised that one day there will be a great marriage feast and the bride of Christ will be united with Him finally and fully for all of eternity. As the bride of Christ, we are to be encouraged that there is nothing that we can do that will separate us from His love. Christ will never leave us or turn away from us. We often will commit adultery on Christ as we turn to our own idols and worship other gods. But He, like Hosea in the Old Testament, will continue to come back and buy us out of our sinfulness and buy us out of our prostitution and continue to love us and to lead us and to nurture us and to care for us. But notice that this is not speaking just about individual believers. In speaking about these things, he's speaking of a group of people. The church is his bride. I'm not his bride. You individually are not his bride. The church is his bride. If you belong to the church through faith in Jesus Christ, Another thing that is mentioned, another metaphor used in the New Testament is the household of God. We are the household of God. Maybe you've heard this phrase used when you were growing up. This is God's house. We don't run in God's house. Right? Um, We keep God's house nice. Okay? We don't eat in the sanctuary. Right? We don't drink in the sanctuary. That is God's house. Um, We hear things like that. We hear things thrown around like that. Talking about this building being the house of God. But that is not what scripture says. This building is not God's house. Now should we be good stewards of what we've been given? Yes. (laughs) But this building is not the house of God. Ephesians 2, 18-22 Paul says, for through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God does not dwell in buildings made by human hands. Acts 17. It's very clear. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So no matter what we'd like to think, God doesn't dwell in this building. He doesn't dwell in any kind of temple that man has tried to make. No, God dwells in his household, his people. You are the household of God. God dwells in his church, in his people. There's not somewhere special that we can go to be in God's special presence. 
We're no longer in the Old Testament where God was dwelling in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat. And priests would have to go in there very carefully for fear of death when they walked in and entered into the presence of God. We are now in an age where we, the people, are the household of God and we gather together. We worship in spirit and in truth as His house. He dwells in His people, not in buildings made by hands. A fourth metaphor used for the church is the family of God. The family of God. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Paul writes Timothy in chapter 5, 1 Timothy, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him, as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. It's very clear to us that we are saved into a family. When we come to Christ, we are placed, not only we are made as a body, we are the bride of Christ, we are made into the household of God, but we are made into a family. We are drawn into a family. As we are drawn into a relationship with Christ, we are also drawn into a relationship with one another. This morning I had breakfast with some of the guys in the band and we were talking about this concept of us being a family as a church. And I had um, a lady at my school in Kentucky who was kind of over women's ministry and things. She always said, Christ didn't just save us from our sin or out of our sin. He saved us into the body of Christ and into a family. So often we like to focus on what we've been saved from and out of. Of And we forget that we have been saved into something as well. We place our faith in Christ. We are saved into this church, into the body, into this family. And Paul, in talking to Timothy, says, Treat these people as your family. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. He said, treat these people like you would treat your own family because they are your family. We have been adopted as children of God. Second Corinthians, God says, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What an encouragement that we are in the family of God. But how discouraging is it that when the family gathers, many refuse to come and take part in the fellowship? Could you imagine gathering around the table in the evening for dinner and you've been telling everyone maybe you're the mom in the family and you have cooked this special dinner and you've been telling everyone, hey, this night... Thursday night this week, we're going to gather. And we're going to have a great dinner. I've been preparing this week. I've been cooking. We're going to have a family dinner. We're all going to sit down and enjoy fellowship with each other. Talk about your weeks and eat food together. And on Thursday night, she sits down and none of the kids show up. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. Right? If mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And when nobody shows up to dinner, mom ain't happy. Especially if she's worked hard. Um, so you've got mom and dad sitting there and none of the kids are around. 
Now she's going to be offended. She's worked hard. Dad's going to be offended because she worked hard and he's going to hear about it. Right? And so you've got people missing. This happens every Sunday. Week after week, month after month, year after year, people who claim to be a part of the body of Christ or part of the family of God don't show up to our meetings. They don't show up to share in the Lord's Supper. As a family, we're meant to be together. We're meant to love on one another. We're meant to encourage one another in the faith. And we can't do that if we don't come together like a family. These metaphors all have huge implications on what we do as the church and how we act as the church. So now we've discussed these characteristics and these different metaphors and this identity of the church. Let's talk about what it does, how the church functions. So the church's function. Again, pulling from Wayne Grudem, he says this, the church is supposed to minister to God, its members, and the world. Simply put, this is the church's job. The church is to minister to God, to its members, and to the world. What does that look like? First of all, it ministers to God by worshiping corporately. If you were here last week, you heard Kevin preach on what corporate worship is to look like. How it's to take place. Specifically, we talked about Colossians 3, 16. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness to your hearts to God. We talked about the horizontal and vertical nature of worship. That we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another to encourage one another. But also, we lift up praises to exalt God and Christ for what He has done. This is part of ministering to God as the church. This is what we do. We sing praises to Him. We worship together corporately. Not only that, but we minister to the members of the church by nurturing and building up the body of Christ. We do that in a couple of ways. Number one, we encourage members in the faith. We encourage one another in the faith as we minister to the members of the church. Colossians 1.28, Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's ultimately our goal in ministering to the members of this body. It's to present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. We're going to encourage you in holiness. We're going to encourage you when you are in despair. We want to build you up. We want to pray for you when times are tough and when times are good. Later, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, the final day, drawing near. Part of ministering to the members of the church is gathering so that we can stir one another up to love and to good deeds. So that we can encourage each other to be serving others. To be rebuking one another when we're in sin. To call one another to a holy life and to maturity in Christ. This is the point of the church. This is how we function. This is how we minister to one another. We do these things through accountability. Through church discipline. Preaching the gospel faithfully. 
That's why we encourage everyone in our body to be a part of a life group. This is where we have small fellowships within this larger fellowship that break off and have accountability. They pray for one another. We bear one another's burdens. We talk about each other's week, how things are going. We discuss the word together. During this time that we can encourage each other, help each other out when we need it. It's how we minister to one another. And we might use church discipline where necessary, not for the sake of kicking somebody out and talking about how bad they are and what an evil sinner they are, but prayerfully disciplining one another so that we would be called to repentance, to trust in God and to, to be part of the family and function as part of the family. And third, we do it by preaching the gospel faithfully. We minister to one another by continually reminding each other that Christ has died for our sins. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We continually remind each other of the gospel. We encourage one another with the gospel. Second, we don't only encourage members in the faith, we also equip members for ministry. We equip ministry uh, members for ministry. Ephesians 4 is very explicit. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The purpose of the church is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. People often talk about pastors in the sense that they have a calling, right? He was called to preach. He was called to music ministry. He was called to student ministry. Whatever that is, it's all unbiblical in the way we talk about it. We are all called to ministry. Everyone sitting in this seat who proclaims that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their Savior is called to ministry. You have a calling. My calling is no greater and no different in its value than your calling. We are all called to take the message of Jesus Christ to a dying world. That's our call. You and I share the same calling. My calling has worked it out, itself out differently. I teach. I help lead worship musically. I might do different things, but your calling is the same no matter where you're at. It's in your job. Your calling is to make disciples. It's with your friends. It's at your kid's soccer game. Wherever it is, wherever your sphere of influence is, you are called to the ministry of the gospel. So what do we do as a body, as a church? How do we equip members for ministry? Well, we provide training and opportunity for service. Grace University just ended this last Wednesday night. We have another one starting up here um, at the end of this month. I would encourage you, take advantage of those opportunities to be trained for ministry. We offer multiple classes in different areas Things that are meant to help you be trained for your ministry. You have a ministry. Maybe at this point you're kind of like, 
I don't know exactly what that looks like in my life. I don't, I don't know where God's calling me with that ministry. Like what exactly, how that'll work itself out. What I'm asking you to do is be faithful. To be teachable. To learning God's word. And as you prepare yourself to serve, opportunities will be provided. God will open doors for you to be sharing the gospel. To be making disciples. We here at Grace try to provide opportunities for you to serve. If you don't know where one of those opportunities is, find someone and ask. I need to be serving somewhere. I'm not doing anything at the moment. How can I serve the body here at Grace? I know I have a calling on my life to minister to other members of this church and to minister to a lost and dying world. Ask how you can get involved. I'm, I do student ministry, just saying, laying that out there. <laughs> There's a children's ministry back there that needs help. I'm just putting that out there. Maybe you're like, I don't know where I'm supposed to serve at this point. Well, there's a need, so go serve. Talk to one of the ladies that works with the children's ministry. Ask them how you can get involved in serving. Every Christian is called to ministry. We all have the same call. That call is to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is how the church ministers to the world. Our ministry is to God, to our members, and ultimately to the world. The church ministers to the world by spreading the gospel of Jesus to all nations, tribes, and tongues. We proclaim the gospel first in word. Matthew 28, we receive the great commission, go into all the world, making disciples, teaching every man, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, Jesus gives a charge that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and through the uttermost parts of the world. We're called to proclaim the gospel in word. We're to preach the gospel with our words. Hear that. It requires words to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a lot of people that want to, well, if I live a certain way, people will see Christ in me and, and they'll be drawn by the Holy Spirit by seeing my life. Yeah, but they still have to hear the gospel. Paul tells us, Ask the questions in Romans. How are they going to hear without a preacher? How are they going to trust in whom they haven't heard? We must use words with the gospel in spreading the gospel. Because there are a lot of different Jesuses that are being preached in the world. We're going with the students next week, leaving this Saturday, to go to Salt Lake City, Utah. To do missions among the Mormon population in Salt Lake City. Listen, Mormonisms teach about Jesus. They even say he died on the cross. And they say that he rose again. Their Jesus seems real close to our Jesus. But when you begin to, begin to probe them about their Jesus, he's not our Jesus at all. Their Jesus is a spirit brother of Satan. And he just had a better plan to redeem the world than then Satan did. And so God cast Satan aside. And now this sibling rivalry thing is going on. And that's not our Jesus. 
But if I'm in the mode of just living my life so that others would see Christ in me and that's all I tell them is it's because I have Jesus. They might end up with the wrong one. They might come across a friend who is Jehovah's Witness and that friend may say, oh, you want to know about Jesus? I'll tell you about Jesus. And they do our job for us and then they've convinced them that the Jehovah's Witness Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible and he is not either. It requires words for us to spread the gospel. We must tell them about the true, the only living Christ who is God in the flesh. We also must proclaim the gospel indeed. So don't hear me say, oh, okay, we can preach at people, tell them about Jesus, but then we don't have to do anything about it. No, the gospel needs to be proclaimed indeed. This involves caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, giving our time and resources to help those in need, all the while seeking to meet their spiritual needs first and foremost. James 1, we talked about it a few months back when we had Orphan Care Sunday and talked about caring for widows and orphans. That's the call of the church. We're to care for those who are oppressed. Those who are poor and who need. The orphans and the widows. Find out how you can get involved. We're going to be providing here in the next couple of months some opportunities for you to get trained to be and certified to be a foster home for kids in the system here in Brazoria County. We have provided in the last few months opportunities for guys to go work on the homes of some ladies who needed help. We need to be the church proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. There's a, a new link on our website called Serve. If you go to the homepage of our website, there's a link you can click called Serve. And it has a list of many different ministries throughout this area of Brazoria County that you can get involved in, in serving and proclaiming the gospel indeed. I would encourage you to get on that website, go to those ministries, ask how they can help. Every one of them has volunteer needs that need to be met. I encourage you to go there, find out what those needs are and how you can help fulfill those needs. Let's be the church proclaiming the gospel indeed. All these aspects of the ministry of the church are important. And one should not be set up as more important than the other. Yes, we are called to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. But if all we're concerned about is social justice and not concerned about the spiritual life of our people, then we are neglecting the gospel and we are neglecting our call. We're not only to be concerned about helping the poor and needy, but leaving them in their sin and not giving them the gospel and calling them to repentance and faith. We are not only called to be equipping members for ministry, but neglecting worship of God. Our Sunday worship service should not be more important to us than serving the poor and oppressed. Well, I'm at church every Sunday... Alright, good. What are you doing throughout the week for the cause of Christ? Well, I'm at church every Sunday. Okay. And how have you helped the poor this week? How have you loved your neighbor this week? Well, I'm at church on Sunday. Alright. 
Have you given the gospel to that person that works in the cubicle next to you? Preaching should not be held higher than music or vice versa. For a long time, you could probably see in the church in America that maybe music took a back seat to preaching. And now I think we're on the verge of maybe flipping that. And that's not good either. Where music is more important than the preaching of the word. It's not. Going to the mission field in a foreign country is not more important than volunteering at the Pregnancy Help Center. We are called to all of these things as the body of Christ, as the church, to the end that we glorify God and stand unashamed before Him on the day He returns. This is our goal. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is our goal. As the church, this is what we are called to do. I encourage you to think about the ways that you're involved in the body of Christ, in the church. How are you serving one another? How are you loving one another? How are you being trained for your calling? How are you fulfilling the call on your life to minister to those around you? I pray that we would be marked as people who love the world, love God, and spread the gospel with every opportunity granted us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come to your word, that we can see that we are not just saved out of our sin, but God, that we are saved into a relationship with Christ and with others. Father, I thank you that we still live in a nation where we can come together, we can assemble, and we can worship you. We can proclaim the gospel without fear of imprisonment or beatings. God, and we recognize this morning that there are fellow members of your universal church who are undergoing harsh persecution for the sake of the gospel. God, I pray that we not get comfortable where we sit. But God, that we understand that any day persecution can come to us. Father, I, be, I pray that you would even begin now to make us faithful to your gospel. And if required, that we would be faithful to the point of death. We pray for so many around the world who are grieving fellow members of your church, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, whose husbands have been killed, whose wives have been killed, whose children have been killed simply because they possessed a Bible, simply because they attend a service, simply because they call themselves a Christian. God, we grieve for them this morning. God, while we still have freedom to proclaim your gospel openly, I pray that we'd be faithful to do so. That we would love our neighbors in word and in deed. That we would love one another. That we would spur each other on to love and good works. Also that the name of Jesus might be glorified. God, that we would pres be presented to Christ on the final day as a bride washed and white as snow. 
thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love, his death, burial, and resurrection. Help us to serve him better and love you more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand as we continue in worship this morning.